0: Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Today's guests are Brian Parker and Jonathan Greenblatt, founders of Legal Innovators, an alternative legal service provider designed to solve two of the toughest problems facing the profession the training of junior legal talent, and diversity and inclusion. Their goal is to change the value proposition of junior legal talent for law firms and in-house teams without sacrificing quality. They do this through a combination of training, mentoring, pricing, and flexible placements. As I think you'll realize from the conversation, Brian and Jonathan have a friendship of over 25 years which began when they were both working at Sherman and Sterling. In today's interview, we learn how that experience shaped their business model, how mentoring benefits all parties involved, and why diversity matters more now than ever. So guys, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for joining me.
1: Thank you. Good to be Uh, here.
0: It's good to have you guys. So Brian and Jonathan, you've got a new startup. Called legal innovators. I take it it's a result both of your passion for hiring and diversity inclusion in the legal profession, but also the fact that you guys have been friends for a very long time. If I read it right, did you did you both meet at Sherman?
2: Yeah, we did. And you know, our meeting and and our relationship really have helped inform the model some. So I was a summer associate, and John at that time was a young partner, but on the on the rise, right? And I was fortunate that. They paired me with somebody that was uh, ascending and had good visibility and respect within the firm. So, although I came back and I went to a different department, we think in our model success generally as mentorship leads to the sponsorship. And if we look specifically at you know diversity, and that's one of the big parts of our model, we're not you know exclusively diverse. We have diverse and non-diverse associates, but. In that diversity bucket, mentoring and sponsorship, you know, really help. So we've we've weaved that into the model. And then, you know, I'm sure we'll get into this, you know, more that John and I maintained our relationship over the years. I think we're, you know, sort of fond of each other. And the biggest thing in my opinion, you know, I know John will have his, is that we have complementary skill sets. I mean, obviously a lot of overlap. We both know the law. But. Uh, John was at Sherman for 40 years, so I, I clearly don't replicate that. And I left and I did finance and and uh, within investment banking, I did operations. So that's a part of the discipline that I bring. Although, I mean, obviously, John knows uh, operations as well. But when you put us together, we think it's it's good for the model and it's good for what we're trying to do.
1: Yeah, and I would just add that the friendship piece of it, there's the mentoring and sponsorship and all those things that, that Brian talked about. But the friendship part of it is what makes it fun. And also, you know, gets us through those difficult times that are inevitable in a startup. You asked how how startup are we? We're a startup. Um, you know, we decided to open this business just before COVID, so you know that hit us in the middle of our really first six months of operation. And we have actually not only survived it, but think the model is probably more viable post COVID than it was pre COVID.
0: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Often people. You know, Brian, you left Sherman and John, you stayed at Sherman. People often drift apart or or stay in limited contact. You guys clearly stayed in much closer contact. You built built a bond, which is not typical in this profession because there's so many time demands and so much going on. But that's a testament to you guys that you kept this relationship going for all these years and it's paying off for you now, I gather.
1: I would say we're both uh, natural networkers. For me, maybe it isn't, unco- I think this is a problem for lawyers in that maybe relationships come become too transactional, but for me, they are permanent. And, you know, when mm-hmm. I make a relationship that matters to me, I I do try to maintain it irrespective of where it might lead. And I know Brian's the same. So, you know, Brian would reach out to me and I would reach out to Brian and, and it was just part of our inherent ability. Uh, actually desire, not really ability, desire to network. And and, um, and that stood us in good stead as we're building the business because so much is built on trust and relationships at the beginning before we have an opportunity to really prove it through uh, years of experience. And we both we both have that in our DNA. Yeah.
0: So walk me through the problem that you see that Legal Innovators is designed to solve. Before we talk about Legal Innovators and the mm-hmm. solution, Let's talk about the problem you've identified.
2: Yeah, I'm going I'm to switch it to John because I think we 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 certainly you know put our heads together and we refine things. But you know John had been thinking about this uh, a lot. I guess I will say on the on the on the friendship piece. I think you know John's good and, and mentors are important to him. And I remember asking him once. I think it was in connection with a podcast. Maybe you know what does the mentor get out of it, right? And I think that as we superimpose that on the market, if, if folks see it's not just like, oh, I got to give, 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 but they're getting some enrichment in return. And as as, as Joan said, right, you plan for all these scenarios. Well, how do you break a tie in this case? What do you do here? And, you know, Joan and I are both, as you might imagine, you know, lawyers at a big firm, strong-willed people. But I think, and importantly, we both take a beat, a breath. If there's something which I mean, we just came out of COVID, right? <laughs> there's some stressful times, and I love that we could rely on. I mean, yes, it's friendship, but within that, it's it's respect for what each other's saying, even if it's not agreement in the first blush. And I think that that's gonna, as John said, a near to the business and allow us to really build on something special. But let me let me jump out of the way, John.
0: Well, let me, Brian, let me let me pick up on something you said because I think it's an incredibly important point. It's something I've experienced as well, which is. If people don't appreciate how much they get out of being a mentor, I feel bad for them because there's an enormous, I don't even know what the word is to describe it, but you you get an enormous feeling of satisfaction of the ability. It's not about giving. And I do think you have some people, I mean, it's obviously giving, but it's, it's, that's not just what you're doing. You are getting something back in return and that's what makes it so useful. And when we put mentorship programs in place at the firm, I think people have been surprised how much for those serving in a mentor-sponsor or sponsor relationship they get out of it. We'll come back to that point because I know that's part of what your program is designed to facilitate. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, and I'll touch on the, the problems we saw that we were trying to solve, which will come around to how we try to solve them. But, but before I do that, just to pick up on what you and Brian are discussing, the other day, my daughter graduated from her, got her doctorate in psychology. And you know, there's an, obviously I didn't have a lot to do with that. <laughs> she did that on <laughs> her own, but there was a, a lot of pride in feeling like, you know, there were some thick and thin times as you can imagine, and we all got through them and, and and she got through them and came out with flying colors. That isn't all that different from the feeling you have as a mentor when someone you've built a personal relationship with also succeeds <laughs> on their own, but maybe aided and embedded by the mentoring. So, you know, it's a tremendous sense of pride as you pointed out, I agree with you. In terms of the problems we saw, there were really, if you could put them into two big buckets. One was diversity and inclusion. I co-founded Sherman and Sterling's diversity. In those days it was called diversity, not diversity and inclusion, but diversity committee in the the early 90s with some associates of color who, who were part of that initiative and I co-chaired it in its inception. And in the 90s, we had some momentum behind trying to build a little bit better pipelines and create more opportunity for people to advance. And 30 years later, if you look at the profession, unfortunately, we're essentially where we were in the 90s and before. And it's been a horrible missed opportunity that I think For people as creative as lawyers and as well-intentioned, I think, as most lawyers are to try to make a difference, we just haven't really made the effort that's necessary to make that difference. That's one thing. Independent of that, putting diversity and inclusion aside, it just became increasingly apparent to me that the way the recruiting, the identification, cultivation, advancement of lawyers generally was happening in the market was broken. It was antiquated and followed a model that might have made sense in the late 70s or mid-70s or when, you know, certainly when I was recruited in the late 70s and early 80s at the law. Maybe it made sense then, I don't know. But the idea that we're using one year of grades at certain law schools to project how someone's going to do, then we put them through a summer program that has no longer become any kind of a screen on performance in the future. And we're locking ourselves into the size and identity of a class two years before you know your market needs. All that just seems completely broken. And it's suppressing opportunity because in law schools, and this I learned from being on the uh, GW Law School Dean's Advisory Board, it's suppressing opportunity because law schools are becoming really environments of have and have not places where you either get a job after your first year and hit the summer program route. or you're left out and you go from an incredibly structured hiring environment to the wild west where everybody's on their own. And there's a lot of talent in that pool that gets left unobserved, unseen by law and by big law and by corporate legal departments. And we just thought those were the problems that we wanted to see if we could solve uh, through legal innovators.
0: Let me pick up on those two buckets because I share your belief that those are huge problems in the legal industry. In terms of diversity, in, in, and I want to talk a little bit about how you guys assess the root cause of those problems, because obviously your solution set is designed to attack the, the root causes of the particular problems. The diversity and inclusion, Jonathan, you made a point that you didn't think enough effort is being devoted to that. Is that the root cause of the problem or are there other sub factors that you take into consideration in designing your your solution set?
1: I'll, I'll let Brian answer first, and then I'll jump in with, uh, because I think that both of us have given this a huge amount of thought. That's not the mm-hmm. only root problem, obviously. Right. Um, mm-hmm. deeper than that. But, Brian, maybe you can start that, and I'll pick mm-hmm. up after you finish.
2: Sure. Yeah. No, no. Fair, fair enough. Um, you know, this is a big one, right? <laughs> We've been thinking, and not just John and I, obviously, but the industry, and you, leaders at, um, you know, I assume firms, uh, firms across Wall Street. And... I like your use of the phrasing uh, root cause, right? Because one of the things that we do, in addition to sort of being very steeped into the DNA of of, uh, big law, you know, really primarily through John's experience, some, some of mine, is data and analytics as a means of assessing across the board what we're doing, how to move the needle, all of those things. If we look and the story that we tell, because we were both featured in an article back in 97, the Wall Street Journal did, um, you know, on Sherman, um, but then John uh, in his capacity as chair or a chair or co-chair of the diversity committee. And then there was another associate in there and uh, me. We were all interviewed, and one of the questions that they were asking, he wasn't you know sort of picking on Sherman, but the highlight, right? And I'm glad they did, and I'm glad that our leadership said, Hey, sure, we'll 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 talk to you, is why are big firms having such a problem attracting and retaining talented African-American associates or, or black now, as, as, as people say? We take your question all the way back 25 years, right? And so at that time, there were 5% black associates in the AmLaw 200 law firms. We move forward till today. It's the same percent. So one of the things that we talk about is that this is a quarter of a century problem so the problems must be systemic and that's where i think we need to go uh, first and so we've done a lot of work as john said on this we came up i mean because we won't obviously even do justice to this in this podcast we wrote a white paper called restoring lost hope and it gets at how do you drive systemic change one of them is is are we putting enough is is the pipeline big enough and so this is the first part is probably beyond just the pale of big law and, and big laws leaders. It goes all the way back to high school and college and who's coming into law school because you have to have a big enough bolus of law school ready people. No, we have more than that already that are in the profession right now. And so I think historically, and John was sort of hinting at this, but historically, we limit ourselves by saying, oh, well, you know, we're going to go to the the t fourteen, so top 20 or top 20, uh, 14. Uh, maybe the top twenty-five, so we keep the the pool really limited, and and so when you do that, you're always arguing if depending on the demographic, but I'll, I'll talk. I'll stick with a black example here. You're going to be arguing over the same two hundred black associates as opposed to if we can take a broader look and we look at top regional schools like on the on the East Coast, Maryland and Yukon and on the West Coast, uh, Santa Clara Hastings. The historically black colleges and universities that have uh, law schools associated with them. We have partnerships with 5 out of the top 6. So look at a Howard or North Carolina central. So now, if we broaden the scope. We go from fighting over these same 200 black associates to 1000. So we, we began this process of a bit of a sea change. Now, what are we doing? And, and by the way, the, the numbers. Because all associates fall out at some point, right? And I shouldn't say that a substantial portion. Not everybody makes partner is is my uh, point, regardless of race, uh, culture, gender, any any of those demographic factors Two, how are we supporting the lawyers? Do we have a democratic process for the way assignments go out? The way credit is given the way lawyers are developed. Now we land back and you know, the point with John about the training and the mentorship. Are we? Doing those things to support people, sometimes people that they may be the first in their family that's gone to law school or be exposed that way. And so I think we've got to think, and, you know, so I've given three or four examples. There are many more. We've got to break it into component pieces, maybe like, you know, you would do in a lean project and, and really look to your point and then say, where are we starting and go back and attack that one thing that I'll give credit and let me jump out of the, the way so John can come in too. But one thing that I'll give credit, especially in a post George Floyd environment, and we hope that we have a movement as opposed to another moment. Um, you know, John, he has uh, even more of a historic perspective than I do. is said, "Hey, you know, we've we've gotten serious about diversity, and it flashes and it ebbs and it flashes and it ebbs. Are we going to have a sustained focus on this?" And I think one good thing that law firms are doing, corporate legal departments, corporations generally, is saying. What environment are we bringing people into and really getting concerned with this uh, concept of belonging? You guys, uh, safer um, shameless plug, uh, has the belonging project, right? So we think about mm-hmm. what kind of environment are we inviting people into? Is it a wholesome environment? Is it an environment that people can be their authentic selves? And when you are your authentic self, obviously, you're going to do the best work. So I'll, I'll get out of the way there. I think that those are just a few of the root cause um, issues that we think about, though
0: let me unpack that a little bit jonathan maybe maybe for you first off brian give our listeners a site to where they can find the paper you referred to i think it's on your website isn't it
2: uh, absolutely and thank you for that cuz it's a you know it's a free resource out there uh, you know our contribution to the to the industry but it's our our normal website which is uh, www.legal-innovators.com and you can find the white paper there, as well as things that we've written, the podcast that we do under the name Law in Black and White. So hopefully people will find things that are helpful to them.
0: Yeah, I, I'll reinforce that. There, you've got a lot of great resources on your website, and I encourage all our listeners to, to hit it and if for learning purposes, if nothing else. So, so Jonathan, um, there's a lot to unpack in, in what Brian said. And maybe you could touch, touch on whatever you want, obviously, but. One of the things that struck me from what Brian is saying is that the expansion of pools, the looking at other sources, it goes to your point about the broken identification and recruiting of people. You're bumping up against an entrenched mindset in the profession, particularly in big law and corporate. How have you approached that? And again, to pick up on something Brian said, have you seen a sustained difference in attitude and approach receptivity after george floyd brianna taylor all of these horrific events that we've seen in the country in the last well it's been going on more than a year but let's just say the last year
1: yeah it's a great question i think the word you used is the right word entrenched mindset and that is the problem and when we get to root causes I'm big on finding root causes and the root causes are deeper than any one law firm can solve, but that can become an excuse for not trying. And I've heard this from people, which is what are we supposed to do? The law schools don't recruit enough people. What are we supposed to do? There aren't enough people getting into law, you know, et cetera. Well, okay. Yes, we need to solve those things. And frankly, I think the profession needs to invest in that part of it if it believes in this, but put that aside, we're dealing with the issue with today's population and the way the law schools are constructed today. Within that, I still think law firms are not trying hard enough and aren't being creative enough. And again, it's not that they they are trying, and I'm talking about the profession at large, people are trying, but they're trying with the entrenched mindset that you just pointed to. And I would suggest that we have to do a lot of things differently. We have to ask ourselves, are we evaluating talent in a way that's relevant to the modern world where our client base is not the client base that looks just like a senior white male partner, number one. Number two, are we empowering people and giving, are we invested in their success? Because too often we brought people in on the entry point but then we left people with very little support to succeed. And that's true of any associate. And we know that what happens is people get marginalized. And as soon as they get marginalized, they don't get utilized. And as soon as they don't get utilized, they're on their way out. And they're often on their way out as a bitter former associate. So, you know, that's a problem with associate development generally, but it has a disproportionate impact. When you're dealing with such a small percentage of your population and and that's why we never get past a certain point we recruit we say we're recruiting better i think as a profession we're recruiting better than we were we're not recruiting creatively enough but even within that we're not promoting i've heard so many recruiting people tell me that, well, we're doing better on the entry level, but we're doing terribly on the advancement and promotion. And if you look at the partnerships of big law, those haven't changed statistically, as Brian said, at all, basically. And and that's because there's an eight to 10 year path to get there. And we're not making that path in any way accessible or something that anyone or very many people see is gonna be successful for them. So whether they're succeeding or not succeeding, they leave. And so we have to focus on that and say, are we invested in success or are we just waiting for someone to fail? And are we evaluating talent and empowering people, giving them a chance to actually go out and both, you know, as we all do and all did, fail until we succeed? You know, I mean, you know, that's how we learn. And I don't think we've been particularly creative in that at all. And uh, so I do think that while the root causes and something legal innovators wants to focus on as well, how do we create more people coming into law school? How do we have the people coming out of law school be big, firm, ready to a greater extent than some may be now? All those things are very important social issues that we want to tackle. But dealing with the population that today could succeed in big law, we're still too narrow minded about the way we're going about it as a profession.
0: I agree one hundred percent, so walk me through the solution legal innovators provides to at least start dealing with the situation that we have in front of us, recognizing that there are much larger societal systemic issues that we all would like to be a part of solving, but we're not going to solve them on this podcast. Walk us through the solution,
2: yeah, I mean maybe maybe we'll um, you know sort of divide this right, because one of the things I was trying to say uh, up front is that we have both diverse and non-diverse uh, lawyers. So part of our solution obviously will we'll go to fostering belonging, uh, diversity and inclusion. but some of it is just general excellence and and, and how, how do we help our clients. You know, John, I don't know if you want to you know sort of talk about the you know, sort of the vision part and how, how structural will pick up on you know maybe the operations and some of the stuff we're specifically doing on screening, I uh, say with, uh, with the algorithm I can pick up there
1: if, sure. I, if that works. Okay. Sure. I mean, the, the first thing we're trying to do is find talent that got missed, that can compete at the big law standards of excellence. I mean, we understand that, and this is irrespective of the person's background. You either believe that all the talent was found through the summer associate hiring process, or you don't. I don't, because I know how that process has broken down over the years. I'm not saying there's no talent, and there, there's lots of talent in there, but it's not all the talent and there's talent that is being missed that can compete. And our standard is using various metrics that Ryan's gonna to touch on, can they compete with what you and we are used to seeing as a good junior associate? Because that's the, we're not gonna put people out there that we don't think can, that's number one. Number two, so we're trying to, and that means we cast a wider net by going to more law schools, And we look at people who, and we try to look at them holistically after three years of law school. We look at what they did as undergrads. We look at a lot of things. Brian will talk about the metrics and analytics that we use as well. Are these people we can bet on? You know, um, Because we try to get to know them holistically and that we can feel very comfortable we can place. The second thing we do is try to rationalize the price point because part of the problem, and I think it's at a perverse Impact on suppressing opportunity is because we're overpaying, in my view, not maybe for the whole entry level class, but we're overpaying in large part by as a profession because we've sort of followed certain things and we don't know how to break it. And we've we've got we're kind of like lemmings jumping off a cliff, following market leaders and everybody in AmLaw, whatever number you want to pick, thinks they have to be at that price point or they'll be perceived to be going down market. We're all doing it and that's causing huge tension with our clients because we know the billing rate that you have to charge to justify that that in turn is causing clients to say, well, I'm not going to use juniors or I'm not going to have them do some of the things that means they don't learn the same way. So it becomes. Really a problem and it has a a ramification on the law school population because we're, we're cutting the size of our summer programs and the entry level as we don't know what to do with juniors at the price point. We've decided to set. So we try to rationalize the price point that's across the board for anybody that we hire in our pool. And then we train. We want to have people practically trained in a way that when they hit the ground in 1 of the placements, they will be able to succeed or they'll have a leg up on succeeding. And and that we do through a network of relationships Brian and I have with practitioners who come in on a very hands-on basis and and deal with a lot of different issues. And then we place them borrowing a piece from the UK model. My practice was very international, so I know the trainee model that they use in the UK is not perfect and I'm not saying we should as a profession in the United States default to that, but there are aspects of it that work very well and we place people on a for a period of time not to do traditional contract attorney work junior associate work that any junior associate would do for a significant period of time 2 1 year periods of time so the firm gets to know them and then and they're supervised by that firm or by the legal department then the firm makes the permanent hiring decision after they've seen them in action and they hire them we hope away from us our objective it, it, success is when someone flies away from us into your arms and is launched on their career. And you've made the decision on a lot more data and information than you're making it when you're hiring through your summer program. And I don't mean you personally, I mean any you No, I
2: person. understand. And I'll yeah. turn it over to Brian to, to talk about the other pieces of
1: that, the operational.
2: Yeah, no, I mean, but some of some of that is operational, like uh, John John was saying. I think it's a well taken point um, in the training that um, and mentoring uh, that that we do. Because uh, as John said, and I think the original vision is, folks are coming out of law school across the board, right? Color, gender, any of the things that we think about, the majority are not quite ready to for you know for the practice of law. So we we drill down with a three week boot camp at the beginning. And then the training is designed to last the entire two years. And it was, you know, sort of designed in part by uh, David Cruikshank who was with uh, Paul Weiss doing the same and now is on his own. And John, who is, you know, takes this, uh, you know, it's just a personal thing to him. Plus uh, he has experience of a lot of years uh, of being an adjunct uh, professor. So how do you deliver this in a way that can be taught? And then after, even after people are placed, Making sure that you're having continuous sessions, whether it's brushing up with somebody on the professional skills that John was talking about, subject matter, and we'll do that in partnership with the clients, or the technical legal skills, right? Whether you're litigation or transaction, you have to be able to think and analyze and problem solve and, uh, and communicate that in a clear way. And so we have resources that help, people, um, that help people do that. And I guess I'll pick up on John's point about the, the, the two years. And within there, there's something else that's really important there still are employees until the firm or the corporate legal department decide to make them a permanent offer so in that way we have de-risked the hiring process for our clients so we know that you you just don't get it you just don't get it right all of the time if we look at the statistics back to your point about metrics and root causes and things like that what the data is showing is that by third and fourth year we're losing 30 to 50% Of associates at a firm, I mean, it's a, it's a terrifically high turnover trace that back to what John was talking about with the summer program, right? The 6 to 10 week program where, you know, and social is important because you're getting them involved in the culture and that sort of thing. But neither side is really getting to know each other. So you come and there's a misalignment of values, or there's um, just a lack of fit. During this whole time, we are, our class has been there and been working for two years. So hopefully they're, they're coming up. It's de-risking your hiring program. And then when associates are there that do churn, well, now you've really invested in, in your own next generation. Instead of being so reliant on the lateral market, our folks are ready to step into the breach. In terms of reaching out more broadly, and, and John, you know, obviously put his uh, finger on that. December of 2019, when the American lawyer first wrote about us as an ALSP or uh, alternative legal service provider to watch, we had our original three uh, partner law schools Georgetown, uh, George Washington, uh, where, where, where John went, uh, and Howard. We expanded to 14 overnight, including, you know, where my alma mater, which is NYU, now we stand at 31 schools. And that goes across strong regional ones, as we talked about a few minutes ago, historically black schools. The skeptics within the system, you know, traditionally some partners that are reluctant to change at law firms say, okay, fine. Um, I get it's more inclusive and more diverse potentially, but how do I guarantee the quality? And, and John and I, and I think even you, right, as, you, as you've as you been in the leaderships, would say and violently agree, we are in the business of providing world-class solutions to really hard problems on the legal front. So quality is job one, two, and three. But we also are saying enough to know that we can walk and chew gum at the same time, meaning that you don't have to give up on diversity and inclusion to have quality and, and, and vice versa. How do we make sure that that happens? Something that we call money ball for lawyers. We, in tons of years of experience, both as a user, being within the system on John's behalf, we look at resumes, we look at the schools, we interview, we test for emotional intelligence, all of those things. We've instituted a writing exercise. So everybody starts equal and you and you write this exercise, which is about eight to 12 pages. But that way we can start to normalize across a big data set. And what do I mean by that? Well, if the person from Howard or North Carolina Central, Connecticut, uh, Santa Clara, GW, Cornell, NYU, in terms of uh, those schools in the, in the top 25, let's take the schools off, read the writing samples next to each other, and they stand on their own. And so if we say, then we put the names back on, and if the Howard one or the Santa Clara one is at the same level as those top 25, that starts to give you, you know, some of the proof that you need. Finally, and, and let me stop, I, I realize we're a long answer on this point, advanced analytics. We have an advanced analytic and predictive analytic model. It's about 20 different factors, all kinds of, did you have leadership positions in college? Uh, Did you have to work? Were you a varsity athlete? Certainly, how did you perform academically? Same in law school, Um, you know, certain classes. Did you have to pay for law school yourself? Did you have to work? Those things tell us about grit. Then they produce a score. This is an objective score. You get a certain score out of the range that we look at, predicts that you can perform at or above the median level of all MLA 200 associates. So if we look at that again, go back to the examples that I use of all three or four of the different buckets of schools as we've expanded. And, you know, sort of, (laughs) I always say the numbers speak for themselves. The numbers are the numbers and they don't lie, but we're not slavish to just looking at numbers or just writing exercise for us. It's really this four-part amalgamation that we put together. Then that gives us a great deal of confidence and underlying that is the training and the mentoring and other resources that we're providing to people, including writing coaches and including performance management coaches. And I just want to say one quick thing about this. We know that our profession is stressful. We know that going in, sometimes that stress manifests itself in bad ways or covered up by things that we don't want it covered up. I think that the new generation, this the millennial generation that we have right now, is saying, hey. I want life balance. I want to be able to be, you know, sort of mentally focused. So we make sure that mental health is promoted, that there are resources for that, that people come in, maybe even if they're a little shaky, like do I belong? That we do things to get them ready, not just with the things across the table that you have to do as a lawyer, but making sure that you're balanced and that you're in focus and all of those things because that leads to good performance. So um, let me, let me stop there. I think we've hit on, you know, probably, you know, too much detail, but that's it in
0: a nutshell, I guess. No, it's fascinating. And you, you you covered a lot of ground there, Brian. So the value proposition for the students you're attracting is obvious to me. But do you deal with the, I'm now focused on sort of the wage side of it. And while I agree wholeheartedly with the concept that this structure is broken, you do have a dynamic in there where these young people are coming out of law schools, most of them with huge amounts of debt.
2: Correct.
0: And do you confront that as an obstacle? Is that an obstacle for you guys in recruiting people into your program that they're they're looking for? I don't know how much of a factor it is in associate compensation, frankly, Perfect. but I do yeah. know young people that have taken jobs at big law firms, not because they want to work for a big law firm, but because they want the money to pay off their, yeah. their loans. And so once that, they pay them off, boom, they're off to do, you know, whatever they do. Whatever, yeah. they do, whatever they want to do with their life. How do you how do you deal I'll, with that dynamic in all this?
2: I'll, I'll say this, you know, given the choice, if somebody... Is going to get a two hundred thousand dollar a year job or make a hundred with us? You know they're probably going to think hard about that two hundred thousand dollar a year job, and maybe in those cases the majority are going to go and take the, take the higher salary. But I think again we have to unpack that. You know for a moment, if we look at the escalation, you guys both know this better better than I. We look over the last ten or fifteen years as this salary has rocketed to where it is right now, Uh, and as John says, the the war for talent because the carrying cost is so much higher at that $200,000 a year salary, we've seen a 35 to 40% pullback in the number of jobs available in big law. So you have people that were going in 10 or 15 years ago that are being missed now, right? So people are investing uh, in themselves and getting, getting an opportunity. That's part of the value proposition uh, as well. And so if you, if you compare it also to well, what are you? What are the other alternatives? Both, what are the grad schools paying that are producing graduates? Our salaries are commensurate with that. We talked and did a survey of of deans to say, is this an attractive salary? Again, yes. And then number three, if you look at sort of the opportunity cost, and what I say to people, and this will be a little bit geeky. You guys can cut this on the editing floor if you want to. But if you look at two streams of cash flow, one that you are investing in those first two years, so. Year one, you have a 100,000 salary, maybe year two, 110 or 120, and then the 200 plus first year, second year on the big loss side. And so let's look at it, both of them over 10 years on the big loss side, what well, we just talked about, 30 to 50% turnover at year three and four. So we know that there's a high degree of beta or, or turnover in the first cash flow stream maybe when you leave the first big law firm, not a given that you're going to a, another place. So by the time we discount that back, we have to, to present value. We have to discount it with the volatility. If we look at number two, where they've invested in themselves for the first two years, one and two at the hundred thousand plus, and then they get a chance to get in a big law, where they then jump up with their class, predict their hope. There's another eight years of cash flow in that statement. Discount that back because we have to do apples to apples to pre- compare the two present value. And I say to people, those two present value calculations are about the same. Now, somebody that may be short-term focused says, "All right, I'm still going to grab the 200 up front," and we respect that. But of those 30 to 5 to 50 40 uh, percent of people that are left out of the system now, also compare the other things that they may have a chance to do: nonprofits, government, uh, teaching, whatever it is those are lower you know, by 20 to 30% than what we're offering. So I think, yeah, you know, again, we we'll unpack it, but those are, those are some of the factors that we look at. And John, I don't know if I missed anything that you wanna add, but that's, I think that's how we look at it.
1: Great, um, we actually haven't seen what you're concerned about that much. First of all, young people, some of them will trade the optionality because they're also evaluating the firm while the firm's evaluating mm-hmm. them. Yeah. So they like that in this environment. We set it at a place with the advice of the deans, as Brian said, it does allow you to pay back loans. It's more than the government pays or nonprofits, which a lot of young lawyers are interested in.
0: Only and in third, law does it not sound like a lot of money. Well, it's, 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 a, it's a lot of money. That, but we that, can't, you know, if we're going said. to rationalize
1: <laughs> things, we can't we can't fall back into the trap of using an irrational price point because mm-hmm. <laughs> you know and and i and, and i honestly believe that if somebody does this successfully whether it's us or somebody else who does this successfully and firms begin to gravitate a percentage of their hiring through this way and i don't think we'll ever completely abandon the other way you know then we will rationalize the price point and we will rationalize what we can charge clients. And I think that will lead to more junior associate work being given. I had a conversation with a client that said, look, if we were charging, if I were a law firm and charging you 200 or 250 or $300 an hour, instead of trying to get five or six or whatever for a first year associate, would there be more work that you're not giving us? And he said, of course, (laughs) we hold back because we're not going to pay that for, you know, so, you know, I do think that we're not tapping into. As a profession, again, we're not tapping into the market opportunities that exist without going down scale on quality.
0: Well, with that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up where we've, we've run a bit longer than I usually go because it's been so fascinating and what the work you're doing is so interesting. Guys, I want to say thank you for your time today and, and good luck. It's Legal Innovators. Folks listening, you should check them out. They're doing some really interesting stuff. Thanks, guys.
1: We want to thank you, too. It's been a real pleasure and honor to be part of this and applaud what you're doing by bringing out all these interesting new things that are going on in the law. It's very far thinking of you. So very much appreciate it.
0: Thank you. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.